0: So we've been talking the last few times about joy. About opening to joy and cultivating joy. About joy being our true nature. And about the ways in which we resist joy. The ways in which we resist our own happiness. And we've mentioned a few times a study that was recently done which actually showed this connection between mindfulness and presence and joy, this iPhone study, right? Which They noticed that people who were more present when they responded to their iPhone surveys actually were happier and more joyful in their lives. And so I want to continue today with that discussion and really exploring a little bit more some of these elements of what, what enables us to open to joy and what shuts us down from opening to joy. And one of the great insights and perhaps paradoxes of this practice is that actually when we open to our pain and we open to our sadness, we open to joy. When we open to our pain, we open to joy. Too often, if we want to achieve some joy and happiness in our lives, which makes a lot of sense... We think we do it but somehow distancing ourselves or running away from difficult experiences or difficult moments, from pain, from sadness, from disappointment, from anger, from all difficult emotions and experience. But in fact, when we push those elements away, when we run away from them, as the Besh says, we just strengthen them. We actually just make them go stronger. They actually just become more tightly attached to us. And so joy and happiness are not about banishing our negative emotions, but actually about paradoxically opening up to them completely. Just total acceptance. Talk about as we were meditating today, just opening a little bit with each breath, accepting with each breath. Because in fact, when we can accept our difficulty, our sadness, whatever's happening. If we can accept it fully and totally. Then joy is present, right in that acceptance. We don't even need to do anything else. We don't need to transform it or fix it or make it go away when we're totally accepting an open joints present. I think each one of us can feel it themselves, just feel, even if you can just imagine, what would it feel like to be totally open, right? Totally open. Just imagining that, letting all the walls fall, having our heart out there and open and being ready to be touched. And there's a sense of well-being just in that moment of openness, just in that moment of presence. It's interesting, Nachman of Bratzlav comments on this. He says that in order to cultivate joy, what we need to do in Hidbaradut is to pour out your broken heart. Precisely through expressing one's broken heart, one's brokenheartedness, we experience joy, not by hiding it or ignoring it, not by banishing the sadness, but in fact, by fully engaging with our brokenheartedness, by fully engaging with our pain. Because there's joy, perhaps even more fundamentally, just in touching the truth. Anytime we're present with truth, when we're really present with truth, moments in your life where you felt it, not intellectually, but experientially, bodily, I'm here, this is true, I'm present, this is true, this experience is true. A moment of real emotional connection with somebody. A moment maybe of being on top of a mountain, a moment of birth, a moment of death. A moment that was just true, even if sad, totally true. There's an openness and a joy in that moment. There's a connection and a beauty in that moment. And so too, this joy, which comes from accepting all this difficulty also comes fundamentally from accepting ourselves. From accepting ourselves by just being willing to accept who we actually are. It's one of the deepest ways we resist our own joy, our own happiness, is that we push ourselves away. We aren't willing to actually accept who we are, just who we are at this moment. And the unfortunate or perhaps fortunate reality... (laughs) is that as long as we're not happy with who we are, we'll never be happy with anything, right? We'll project that unhappiness, that dissatisfaction onto everything we encounter. doesn't matter how much we accomplish, how much we do, right? Nothing can fill that infinite black hole which is not accepting yourself. No amount of objects, no amount of accomplishments, if you're unhappy, you'll project that unhappiness onto where you are, or you can be on the most amazing beach in the world. <laughs> but if you're beating up on yourself, it's not going to be the most pleasant experience. If you're unhappy, you'll project that unhappiness onto who you're with, right? You can be with great people, wonderful people, people you love. But if you are unhappy with yourself, right? If you're rejecting yourself in some way, it's not going to be much fun being with them. You can have the greatest things in the world, the best, whatever it is for you, whatever is the thing that you want, right? But if you're unhappy with yourself, you can't truly enjoy and open to that object, whatever it is. As Robert Holden said, nothing is ever enough if you determine you are not enough. Nothing's enough if you are not enough. A lot of us have these these you know, narratives running through our brain. Robert Holden talks about this. He says, How do you know if the I'm not good enough narrative is running through your brain? Well, there are a few signs. I'm just going to say a few of them, not going to say all of them. For instance, you might actually tell yourself, I'm not good enough. That's a good sign. <laughs> that thought arises. But a little more subtly is that somehow your best is never enough. Even if you try really hard, you do a good job whatever, you always are finding something wrong with what you did. You somehow didn't do it quite right. You somehow didn't do it perfectly. You somehow didn't do the whole thing, right? Something was always wrong. Something was always still not enough. Maybe you think you don't get enough approval or recognition from other people. Or you compare yourself unfavorably to other people, right? They're always, that person managed to do that, that person managed to do that, they're doing all these things, what have I done? Maybe you just dismiss or overlook the ways that you've actually succeeded or the ways that you've had good fortune, the luck in your life, just the luck in your life, right? The fact that you've met lovely people or you live in a lovely place or you've had the opportunity to experience really interesting things, whatever it is, you overlook those parts of your life. Or you feel like you never have enough of anything. Money, time, rest, accomplishment, whatever it is. There's some feeling of it's not enough. There isn't enough out there. right? There isn't enough out there. And you overachieve right, in an effort to prove that actually you are enough. And in fact, all these come down to some deep feeling that somehow we're not enough just the way we are. But actually, each one of us is enough. We're each enough. Right now just the way we are, we're totally 100% enough, a hundred percent. And we tell ourselves so many other stories, so many similar stories. We tell ourselves, for instance, we're wrong, right? Things always go wrong for you. I'm always wrong. I'm a misfit or I'm an imposter, right? I present myself a certain way to the world, but it's all a lie. Everything's my fault. Or you feel like you're the black sheep in some situation. You're always getting things wrong. Or we tell ourselves that we're bad, right? I'm no good. I was misbehaving as a child. I have a bad attitude. I'm a sinner maybe, right? (laughs) I always do things wrong. You criticize yourself a lot or, and this is the same actually aspect, you're totally averse to any kind of criticism. Anytime anybody says anything to you, even if it's sort of constructive, it's like it's too much. You can't handle it, right? You have to reject it because there's already this narrative going on in your head, which is telling you somehow that you're bad, you're wrong, right? Or maybe you don't trust things when they're good. When things are good, it's like, well, it's got to end soon, right? (laughs) You can't actually stay good. Things aren't actually going to stay just like this. Or maybe you overcompensate, some of us do, by like having to be good and doing good all the time in a kind of anxious, frenetic way. Like there's this drive to have to be good because somehow we feel like we're bad. And a similar way you can feel like you're nothing, right? You're a nobody, you're invisible, nobody sees you, you get depressed, you're overlooked, you feel like a doormat, you have no time for yourself, not enough, wrong, bad, nothing. But the great thing is that they're all lies, right? They're all just your mind making up stuff and lying to you. And it's not because your mind is out to get you, right? It's not like it's got it in for you. But unfortunately, we've, we've gotten entrenched in this mistake, which is that we think that all these negative messages we're telling telling ourselves, the judgment, the criticism, are somehow good for us, We think it's gonna motivate us, it's gonna change us, it's gonna strengthen us, right? And we've had some experience that somehow, at some point in our life, probably in childhood, sending ourselves those messages probably made us feel safe in some way. It did motivate us in a certain way. Or it made us feel like, well, at least the problem is wrong with me, then it's my fault and I can fix it somehow instead of it being my parents' fault or somebody else's fault. And then it's totally out of my hands and terrifying because it's totally out of control. But, again, paradoxically, what actually heals and transforms is this deep self-acceptance. We don't transform ourselves by hating ourselves. We don't transform ourselves by thinking we're terrible. We transform ourselves by seeing our genuine nature which is joyous and which is good and which is already there. we don't actually have to, I mean one of the, language is always tricky, but when we talk about self-transformation, that's important. But what's more important is to recognize that there is no self-transformation. We don't have to transform ourselves. We don't have to become anything. We just have to open to who we already are. We're already there. We already are that. And we can touch it in moments. We open for a moment it's like, oh right, there's love, there's joy, there's connection. It's present, it's already there. So what do you love about yourself? What do you love about yourself? I want everybody right now, to think about five things you love about yourself. I'm just going to pause for a second. If that's your task in the next minute. Think of five things you love about yourself. Really great things about yourself. So, for some of us, that may have been hard. Maybe some of you didn't think automatically of five things you love about yourself. But I promise you, there are way, way more than five things that are lovable about each one of you. Way more. But it's hard for us to see them sometimes because of this lack of self-acceptance. We learn in our liturgy every day that we are actually loved. We are deeply lovable. That God loves us. With great love you have loved us. Right? We say it every morning. We say it every evening. That we are loved with the deepest, most pervasive love in the universe. Each one of us, and we each deserve it completely. It's just our birthright as being the beautiful human beings we are. And it's so easy for it to get lost. And so Rabbi Nachman has come up, of course, a lot in these talks about joy. He says, what you have to do is just find one good point in yourself. nikuda primit. This one inner point which is good. Even if you think you're totally lost, you're totally beating up on yourself. Anytime you're doing that, find that one point. You're like, all right, this is one thing. One thing I did that was good. One thing. It's not easy. One quality I have that's good. Right? Just one thing. And from that point, we can start to recognize our essential goodness, our blessedness, our divinity, our openness. We can find and start to cherish that aspect of goodness within us. And so, to transform, to become who we already are, what we need to do is actually not engage in the self battering, but engage in self love. To find that place where we really cherish ourselves and then to open to it to cherish it and expand it a little bit more to give ourselves a little more room for that place of love On a deeper level, let me just another level. We achieve joy. This is a little more complicated. By giving up our sense of identity. By giving up our identification with ourselves, Of who we think we are. We tend to define ourselves. We paint ourselves into some kind of hole. Some kind of picture. This is who we are. We're somebody who has, you know, made mistakes or didn't get the love we wanted or we've been wronged in some way or we grew up in some difficult situation or we were unlucky or we always get in fights or we're unpopular or we failed or we're slow at something or we get things wrong or we're shy, whatever the qualities are that we sort of define ourselves by. And the problem is not that we've had experiences like that. And it's not a problem of identifying and remembering those experiences. Like, oh, this happened. This was really hard. That's an important part of who I am, why I became who I am, an important part of my experience. That's really important. It's not about disassociating or rejecting those experiences. But we don't have to identify with them. They're not us. I'm not a person that I've been wronged, right? I'm not a person who makes mistakes there have been mistakes. I've made mistakes, right? But they're not me. They're not my identity. I don't just sort of cling to them in any way. I feel like whenever I try to talk about this, it's, a, it's it feels always a little bit unclear. It feels hard to explain clearly, but you might just want to check out for yourself and check out, is there a story that you have about yourself, about who you are? I'm this kind of person or I'm that kind of person. And then you can sort of check out, just see, investigate. Well, is my claiming that as being this kind of person or that kind of person, does that cause me pain? You know, Does that make life difficult for me in any way? Do I fall back into doing that, for instance, for that reason? Or do I hold on to it because it's somehow safe and familiar, even if it isn't really serving me and helping me, right? But I hold on to it anyway. Robert Holland talks about how he's working with a patient um, who had anorexia. And that one of the breakthrough movements was in her seeing that she wasn't anorexic. She had anorexia. And that was really important and need to be dealt with and open to and explored, but she didn't have to identify with being an anorexic. It wasn't her, right This event and condition didn't have to define who she was. And, and so it's really important for us to notice that distinction, especially because, as you mentioned, sometimes in, in certain events in our life, especially traumas or particularly difficult situations. There's a way in which owning that event was really important to us. It's really crucial to own it. Because sometimes we have a tendency to disassociate it, to want to sort of distance ourselves from it. And it's important to own it and claim like, yes, this was me, this happened to me, this is part of my experience, right? It's crucial. But then since we fall into the trap of it defining us, right? so we want to own it, we want to recognize its presence without allowing it to take us over. Because it never defines us, it's never who we are. And so we can just practice that way. One of the beautiful techniques of practice is just as anything arises in practice, you're noticing your breath, you're noticing whatever thought arises, emotions arise, memories arise. You can just lightly say, not me. And you're just say, not me, not me. Not with any rejection. It's not like, oh, terrible. I don't want that to be part of me. Joy arises. Happiness arises. Compassion arises. Not me. Not me. Not because you don't want them to be there. They're great qualities. But we don't have to identify with them. But you can just notice, like, joy is manifesting. How beautiful is that? Still not me, right? (laughs) Because when it's me, then I start grasping onto the joy. And I have to keep the joy around. Because otherwise, if I lose the joy, I'm losing part of myself. And then the joy goes away because then we're attaching to it. Then we're, like, you know, holding onto the joy by our fingernails. And that's not very joyous. (laughs) Kind of depressing. We're kind of just like, right? So much tension in that. I feel like, in my experience, parenting can often sort of force us to step outside of ourselves again and again. It's one of the beautiful things about kids. And on the one hand, that can be difficult, and it can produce anger and resentment, etc., and that's totally normal. But on the other hand, when you're really ready and willing to step outside yourself, and especially there's so much presence, because kids have so much presence, there's just great joy there. It's like, okay, I can just forget. I can forget about all the parts of my identity and just be right now. Indeed, in some ways, that's the certain the Hasidic sources—the goal of the path. Hasidic sources talking about us reaching the state of Ayin, of nothingness, of totally letting go of our sense of self, and they say that that is the place of Simcha, of joy. Right. So, when we're willing to let go, joy just blossoms. It just arises. It's just there. We don't have to do anything. In fact, the very letting go of self is joy, because it's the holding on to the self which is blocking us from the joy which is our true nature. It's the joy which is already there. It's very important also as we touch on these pieces of joy, how we really open to joy. It's, like, you know, the gift of opening to joy. Just remembering for a moment a time in your life that was joyous. Just tasting that time of joy. Just feeling that smile on your face. It's very important to remember that this joy is not selfish. Right? Sometimes, another ways we resist it is we think that, A, we're not deserving, and B, it's somehow selfish to pursue our own joy and happiness, to open to our own joy and happiness. There's something wrong with that, right? With being happy. But in fact, the opposite is true. The total opposite is true. And you know that actually from your own experience. That compassion and understanding flow when we're joyful. When we're all depressed and angry and upset and bitter, there's not a lot of compassion in helping other people going around, is there? But when we're feeling actually quite joyful and open and present, then we're ready to reach out. We're ready to help others. In fact, our joy is a gift, it's a gift to the world. It's infectious, and it's lovely, and it's bright, and it's clear. And it's actually not just our own experience, but there have been a number of studies looking at the connection between compassion and joy and depression. And in fact, what they found, unsurprisingly, is that depressed people are more self-absorbed. more right? you're depressed, the more self-absorbed you are. And happy people are actually more loving, more kind, more tolerant, more forgiving... <laughs> And less judgmental. So it's an action, it's always true of the practice, an action which is both moving inside and outside at the same time. As we cultivate our own joy, we actually cultivate our ability to be in a more loving, open way in the world. A way which reaches out to other people and provides them with the help, the compassion, and the love they need. And so to do that. One thing we just want to do is just cultivate joyful states. It's very simple, but what makes you happy? (laughs) Just think for a second, like what actually makes you happy? What things do you do that, that make you happy? That make you feel a little bit of joy. I don't know what it is for you. You know, for me, I love dancing. I don't do it enough. (laughs) So, you know, I should probably do that more. It's like, what just makes you, what makes your heart open? right what makes you feel alive hiking an ice cream cone I don't know right it's all good it doesn't really matter talking with friends singing skipping just like notice and this I want to sort of throw it as a possible homework project for us this week is just write down a list of what makes your life joyful like what brings joy into your life and then Write down a list of how often you do those things. Right? (laughs) Like there's all kinds of stuff we do in our lives. So it'd probably be helpful to notice what actually does bring us joy and are we doing those things? Right? And if you're not so much, great. Now you have a wonderful opportunity to increase the joy in your life, right? (laughs) It's like, oh okay. And try and make some time, like concretely. You know, because it's easy. Especially, this is part of the sort of not good enough in the culture we live in. It's like, we make time for work, responsibilities, homework, getting things done, etc. Maybe washing the dishes. <laughs> who knows? You know, we, we make time for certain things in our life. And then, also, sort of sadly enough, we sometimes then, because we're exhausted, fall into leisure activities. We're actually not the things which bring us joy. Maybe the other thing's bring us joy, and then that's fine. But like, we fall into just vegging out, or watching TV, or I don't know what else it is for you, right? We just fall into something because that's easy. It's there. We're on the couch. We're exhausted. It's been a long day. Easy to do. Totally fine. But just check out. Does that actually bring you joy? Does that actually bring you joy? Or actually, this other thing I know brings me joy, so let's make sure I make time for it. Schedule it in. You know, put it in your... Uh, luach, whatever. Make sure that you're making time to make that happen in your life. Because when we cultivate those places of joy in our life, then the joy starts to spread. You know, it starts to be just more present in our life. It starts to be able to crop up at other moments as well. And it brings a kind of stability and openness that allows us to joyfully open to and accept everything else that's happening in our life. So I want to stop there for today, and I want to really encourage you to do that, right? (laughs) I I mentioned it here, it's easy to forget, but really, just like take, it's like 10 minutes, right, to sit down and actually just make a list, like what are the top 10 things in your life that make you happy, that make you joyful, right? Just like, what is fun in my life? Just make a list of the top 10 things, and then just think about how do I make sure that these things, with some regularity... Appear in my life. I don't know how do I just make sure they appear in my life? And next time, we're going to continue talking about joy. And uh, as well as sort of joy in our normal life, we're also going to talk a little bit about um, always an interesting aspect of the practice, which is bliss states. Sort of how we achieve bliss states, sort of ec- ecstasy and joy, which can occur from working with the practice. Um, so now, as normal, it's just time open for questions, thoughts. People have... Yeah. Um, it's not direct, um, but how would you recommend sort of balancing um, meditation with, let's say, doing therapy or something like that, where there's a big focus on not really being in the moment because you're always trying to solve things, and yet through that there's the possibility to come to some realizations that you also get through meditation. Look, I think, first of all, there's many different modes of therapy. Mm -hmm. And some of them are actually about being in the present moment. Many of them, of course, work with memory and sort of entirely not. I think therapy is a fantastic practice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about, um, it's not about, you know, it doesn't have to be about choosing. You know, it's not about like, well, I'm doing this, everything else has to be bad or something, Right. They're different modalities. They help us in different ways. Very, very helpful. We can uncover, I've done therapy multiple times at different points in my life. Mm-hmm. Found it extremely helpful. I find that it works very well in conjunction actually with meditation. Meditation helps me be more present and open to actually what's happening. And we notice actually if we medit- meditate for a while that basically things that we've repressed and hidden from come up because as we open and become safer, more vulnerable, it's just natural that these experiences arise. And we can deal with them in meditation very effectively, and therapy can also deal with them extremely effectively and extremely valuably. Do yeah, think it's like contradictory? Not at all, I don't think it's contradictory at all. I think the most important thing, with all these things, it's a simple question, which is, what helps? Like, it's not, about, it's not all theoretical, it's just like, is this helping you? Is it making you more open, more compassionate, more aware of the truth, happier? Great, <laughs> go for it. And there are different parts of our self. So it's not that there's other where I just want to mention in terms of it because you mentioned you know about being contradictory. We want to learn how to be present because we're really bad at it, and we've been trained not to be there. And so we run away from it, and causes us a lot of pain and suffering. But being present, first of all, is definitely not saying there's nothing wrong with the mind and with thinking and thoughts. Thoughts are great. Thoughts are really helpful. They're a wonderful part of about being human, right? There's nothing wrong with memory. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future either. The problem is only that when we're trying to do something else, we're stuck in memory and planning for the future, right? <laughs> being present is just being like, okay, now I'm going to go through this process of sort of unearthing what's been happening inside me, or Now I'm going to go through this process of planning. Planning is good. I don't want you to not plan, right? <laughs> I plan all the time. I plan what I'm going to say in this class, right? <laughs> Lots of planning going on. Nothing wrong with planning. Just you don't want to get it. Caught in planning as a you know, drug, as an escape from being with the moment, which might be painful or happy or whatever's going on. Right. So just be, let's be clear, Like when I'm planning, okay, I'm planning. And that's my moment. My present moment is planning right now. Fantastic. My present moment is memory right now. My present moment is analysis right now. Fantastic. We just don't <coughs> want to do lost. Thanks. trouble sure. um, understanding... Identifying things that we like about ourselves, and then not identifying with them. It's been yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, good. Um, so, identifying things we like about ourselves. So let's say, I don't know that I like curiosity about myself. Great. So there's this conjunction of stuff, which is me, right? Like there's a body here, and there are thoughts happening, and there are emotions happening. And that's all fine and good and one of the patterns which seems to arise over and over again in this conjunction of body-mind-thought-soul is curiosity and that's really good it's really helpful it's a lovely quality it brings me joy it helps me grow great but it's not me mm-hmm. right and and I can figure out whether I think it's me or not because for instance let's say I wasn't so curious for a little while, right? Would I suffer because of that, right? Would there be this pain of loss of my sense of self and who I am, right? Do I feel like I have to be curious in order to be good or okay or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be, right? There's some should there, it's not just a quality in me, but there's a sense of should I have to have it? And that sense of should is always connected to a sense of Self, right? A sense of identity. Like, this is my identity. I have to be this to be okay. So it's not a question of, of whether we sort of have things. Of course, we have things. We have all kinds of qualities that are manifesting in us. Emotions are manifesting in us. Thoughts are manifesting in us. Great. Fine. That's what it means to be human. Wonderful. But if we start to identify with them, then they become more than just things happening in us and things we can cherish or things we might also say, oh, that's interesting. That's manifesting to me. Not such a great idea. Let's see if I can work with that in a better way. That's also really wise, but we start to attach to them. We get tight around them and then there's things which arise, which are blame self judgment, not being good enough pain when they're lost or when they don't happen to be present feelings of failure or something if they don't happen to be present at the moment, they're not arising at the moment. And so it's really about sort of, uh, texturally, I mean like the texture of things. So you can just feel out, how do you relate to it? Do you relate to it with a kind of lightness? there's lightness there, you're probably not identifying with it. You're just like, oh, this is a really lovely light. This is a great quality. And if it's like, this is a great quality, which I have to have, right? (laughs) Then you know you're identifying. And you can feel, just in that sense of, I have to have it, that sense alone, never mind any of the other implications, there's pain. Right in that sense that I have to have it. You can just feel it in your heart. You can feel the tensing up around it, around the grasping at it, right? There's that pain there. So it's like the difference between I'm cold and I'm feeling coldness or I'm patient and I'm experiencing patience. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say one other thing about that. That's exactly right, and I just want to warn us all, is that sometimes we can use that language to disassociate. Right? And we can use always our practice to actually, in a not healthy way. So it's like, we don't actually want to be angry, right? Because we feel like angry is, being angry is unacceptable or wrong or bad. And so we say, well, anger is present. But what we actually are doing there is just repressing, right? <laughs> right? We're just actually not willing to experience rage, which is actually coursing through our body at the moment, right? So the true way is like, there is a ton of anger here right now, Right? And I feel it, and my body feels it, and my heart feels it, and I don't have to identify with it, but it's really, really here. But if you notice yourself saying, like, I'm not identifying with it, as if it's, like, over there somewhere, right? <laughs> <laughs> then, then you're just repressing it, right? And then you're disassociating from it. How do you um, uh, accept yourself but still pressure yourself? Yeah. when you accept yourself, totally, in the moment, totally open to who you are, then you can actually see the parts of yourself which are unhelpful, and you can see them because when you don't accept yourself, seeing those parts of yourself is extremely difficult and painful because it feels like a rejection of who you are, a rejection of yourself, right? It's about sort of self-hatred and self-blame. But when you can see yourself with total acceptance, then you can see just with a kind of wisdom that says, oh, this isn't helpful, which doesn't have any aggression in it anymore. You know, have a difference? Like, There's no aggression, there's no violence in that. It's just very clear. It's like, this is not helpful. Okay, and now I'm gonna make effort, and there's effort involved. It's not like there's no effort. There is effort, right? Now I'm gonna make an effort to work with that aspect, whatever it may be, right? And usually the first place of working with that aspect is accepting it. Which again may feel like paradoxical, but let's say anger, let's say anger rising, and I know I, I snap at people, right? The first thing I wanna do is actually be willing to be present with the anger, because I'm actually externalizing the anger, because it's so uncomfortable for me. I'm so unwilling to be present with it. It's so painful. And if I'm willing to genuinely open to that anger, then I can make other choices. Right? Sometimes other choices might be, oh, I can really be open to it. I can be with it. I can talk to the person. It. Sometimes it's just like, I can have that millisecond beforehand where I recognize there's a lot of anger coming. I can't control this. I better walk out of the room. Right? <laughs> it's not that always we can be like 100% wise, but we can be a little wiser. Right? just to recognize like, This interaction isn't going to go very well if I stay here right now, so I'm just going to leave. And whatever those pieces are for us, it's actually through the acceptance, which allows us to see it in this much more gentle, compassionate way that change is possible. Which doesn't mean that there isn't effort, and which doesn't mean especially there isn't discipline. There's going to be a lot of effort and discipline. It takes tremendous effort and discipline. But it's effort and discipline from a place of self-love rather than self-aggression. Yeah. So you're talking about um, being 100% enough yeah. at any given moment, um, I was wondering if you could just speak to that. I mean, to me, it just sounds sort of like a plat. like I'm having trouble connecting with it because I can think of lots of times when whatever resources I have at a given moment really aren't enough to accomplish something that would be helpful or that I wanted to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, that happens all the time, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. We try to do something, we can't do it, we fail, we mess up, yeah. right? We don't have whatever it is. That's impossible for us to do whatever we're trying to do. And it's okay. And that's what being enough is. It's saying that not in a platitude. I found it find it incredibly um for me one of the deepest sort of points of practice. Which is incredibly challenging, which is, let's say we try to do something and we fail. And in one sense, we weren't enough. And that's fine. Like we failed. And we did fail. And we can see that. It's like, oh, I tried to do that. Didn't work out. Right? <laughs> Whatever it was. But we can go from there, which is saying event happened. I tried to make event turn out certain way, event did not turn out that way. Truth of the moment. To therefore I am somehow wrong or not enough. Insufficient or bad. Right? It's something about me, essentially. Something about my identity. I'm worthless. I'm never enough. Sort of stories we tell ourselves. But instead what we want to try to do is recognize something happened. I failed. I maybe made a mistake, right? And that's the truth of the moment. I'm going to be totally open and present to that. And there's a truth of the moment, which is that that's still not me. I don't have to identify with that. The same question of identification. That there's still, I would call it divine presence, which is there at every moment, at all times, it's always there. And we never lose that. That it doesn't... I may fail, but I'm not a failure. Right? And I don't just mean that in, you know, I may have failed a bunch of times. That's fine. Good. So let's think about that and work with it. But I don't have to take on the identity of being a failure. Because any time I do that, I take on the identity of being a failure. Of somehow not being enough in that way. I start to attack and sabotage myself. I experience guilt, pain, suffering. I start to react to other people out of that guilt, pain, and suffering. I'm a less nice person to be around. And instead, if I can respond to it from a place of wisdom, which is the place of, okay, this happened. This genuinely happened. It's not something essential about me. And because it's not essential about me, I don't need to protect myself from it at all. I can sort of fully open to how much of a failure it was, right? It's often right when we make fails and like, we want to justified or explained or not fully open to it because it's threatening to us to say, "Wow, I really totally messed up. (laughs) I really wasn't able to do that. But when we're not defending ourselves anymore, we can say very openly, right? Okay, I totally messed up. I really failed. How do I do that better next time? So the question is sort of, in a certain sense, another way we can just ask this is, what's the goal? If the goal is that we're supposed to have some sort of sense of guilt or beating up on ourselves and that's sort of what justice or something demands, then you want to identify yourself as a failure and feel like you're not enough. But if the goal is to do the best we can, right? And to be as helpful as we can, to be as loving as we can, to be as open as we can, to be as joyous as we can, then just the most helpful technique, and this is just talking about my own experience, you know, my own experience of different ways of relating to my own situations. The most helpful way to relate to it is to just realize, like, this happened, this event happened, I'm responsible for it. Also important, it's not about it's not identifying, it's not saying nothing to do with me, right? Yeah, I did it, right? I'm responsible for it. Also, when we do something wrong, when we hurt somebody, we take total responsibility, 100% responsibility, without identifying with it, right? I did this, I take responsibility, I have to make amends, I have to ask forgiveness, I can do everything I can to repair the situation, and I can do that precisely because I'm not lost In some story of guilt, I'm rather present in a very clear awareness of regret, which is a real regret for what I did. What I did was harmful. Now I'm going to do. I can recognize that what I did was harmful because recognizing that doesn't mean that I'm essentially terrible. It means that I did something harmful, and now I can act to repair that harm from a place of much more wisdom and openness. That's at least my experience. The key. Say this now, if people are checking out don't believe anything I say (laughs) it's really important. I'm just saying stuff from my own experience in my practice. Check it out yourself. Like really, I mean that hundred percent, you know, that's just hundred percent true. It's not about me saying things and you're supposed to sort of say like, Oh, that's true. Right? Like I'm suggesting things which are true from my experience in doing this practice and try it out yourself. Try it out. If I try to relate to myself in these two different ways, how do things work out? How does it feel for me? How does it feel for other people? Experiment. One of the best things about this, right? Really just experiment. Figure out how does it experience while I'm doing the practice? How does it experience when I try and check it out in real life? Right? And then see what happens. Does it seem true to you? Or does it not seem true to you? So thank you, everybody.